Weekly Grapple Fans, and welcome to the second edition of Rerun the Rivalry, the little December Christmas time special new series where myself, you let me tell you something, co host Lorcan Mullen, and your other, let me tell you something, co host Simon Cross, talk through every singles match in a famous rivalry in the annals of pro wrestling. We're doing, for our first choice, maybe the greatest passing of the torch storyline in wrestling history. It's Okada, it's Tanahashi, it's New Japan, it's where Simon, it's when Simon, and what's it for? It's on the 12th of February 2020, 2012, 2020, and it's the defending champion, uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi, taking on this, this, this plucky young upstart. This, 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 this know-nothing bum. This out-of-nowhere guy. Yeah, I've, I've, I've fought him before, but and he's dyed his hair since, but so what? Kazuchika Okada. Mm. So, this is a regular tradition, really, within New Japan, that when a returning young lion comes back, very often they'll be put into a high-profile singles match very early on in their run. This will be Okada's second singles match since coming back, his first one being Wrestle Kingdom the month before, where he defeated Yoshihashi, also returning from his learning excursion, in about five minutes in a very bad match with a very unimpressive-looking Rainmaker finish. Ah. So when he comes out at the end of Wrestle Kingdom to challenge Tanahashi, there is this real sense of who the hell is this lad <laughs> to make this challenge? And are New Japan really this depleted now in the potential challenges for Tanahashi after he's just broken the record for the most successful defences of the IWGP Heavyweight Championship? And that's really the story going in. Major, major Conor McGregor, who the fuck is that guy vibes. <laughs> yes, but kind of like Conor McGregor, Okada's talked his way into this role that some are saying is a fight or two ahead of his schedule, and what does he do? Pulls out the big one, as in the big victory. <laughs> Not the big Rainmaker, although we do see a Rainmaker in this. We do see a Rainmaker. So, this was a, at the time, this was seen as... The, a potential huge mistake. I remember Dave Meltzer writing in the Observer that this is just this is utterly the wrong decision to make. Okada's not a proven draw. You've just ultimately harmed o- Tanahashi. You haven't helped Okada. He's not ready. There's no proof that he's ready. He's never had a great match. You know, he's spent the past year and a half you know, dressing up as Kato and various other things. <laughs> he hadn't had a singles match since August of the previous year. But it had always been obvious that New Japan saw big things in Okada, having his final match on before his leaving be against Hiroshi Tanahashi. In a quick sidebar, do you reckon this is why New Japan developed very, very large-scale trust issues with American companies? Yeah, there's no disputing that. They've said it, basically. (laughs) (laughs) There were no more American excursions for any... They developed trust issues so much that they went over opened a dojo, and then opened their own American company. (laughs) That's true, yeah. In fairness, they've had a presence in America for years before them, but yeah, the current dojo is a a significant aspect of that. But that's also more about Western expansion ideas, because it is, you know, other than Ren Narita, it's pretty much all been non-Japanese talent that have gone through those dojos. Mm. 
Uh, that dojo, sorry. And they do also have a, a New Zealand dojo that Bad Luck Farley is responsible for, but nothing has yet been produced from there, so we don't know yet how that will do. Fair. Yeah, and, but Okada, they always had big plans for, I think, because they did bring him back, actually, whilst he was on his learning excursion, to appear in the previous Wrestle Kingdom as well, in a tag team match. I think he was teamed up with Hiroki Goto. And he doesn't have the Rainmaker look yet. He has kind of a, um, sort of almost like a baggy, uh, actually quite, I think they were quite similar to sort of the bottoms that the, the Great Okan wears now, actually. Okay. What, sexy? Yeah, if, yeah. yeah they, they were kind of along the lines of what he was wearing in TNA before he got catoized. Right. This was a real interesting exp- example of what New Japan probably know. Because it's so funny how, how New Japan are literally training these people to not go all out. Mm. Not go balls to the wall until it's the right moment. And they obviously must have them do like tons of matches in the dojo and everything. I just like, I find it hard to believe that in the period between that Young Lions match he has with Tanahashi and him having this match with Tanahashi less than two years later, that he suddenly developed a vertical leap that means he can drop kick you (laughs) flat on the butt of the chin. So it it is a case of like, this is a grand unveiling, the likes of which we've rarely seen. All the stuff that Jay White was doing when he did his excursion on the indie scene was not to set up this Switchblade character. So they must have these ideas that they work on and cultivate outside of the public eye essentially and let develop over time we've sort of seen like shota umino go a different sort of way with it he has been the character the death rider pretty much throughout his excursion but then again if john moxley adopts you you kind of you kind of take on that moniker don't you well maybe also it's just a case of if when he had gone to TNA, they'd said the handcuffs are off, you can do what you like. Maybe we would have seen this Okada beforehand, but it wasn't the role that they had in mind for him either. Oh yeah, I was going to say, we wouldn't have. We, athletically we would have, but that's about it. I couldn't see TNA really taking the ball and running with him, and that's not a slight against him, that's just a nod to how chaotic TNA was. Well, I suppose the only example of a learning excursion being one where, to the point that they they create the star before they even come back, is the great Muta and the run he has in WCW, NWA, Jim Crockett promotions, however you want to sell it, from 88 to um, the start of 1990. Yeah, but he was on another level. Yeah, but Okada was clearly on that level physically as well, but we just never got to find out. They let the Great Muta go out and do that stuff. And obviously because they knew from the Great Kabuki, who was meant to be his storyline son, I guess they knew where they wanted to go and the whole mist and everything was just cool as hell. And they also had the perfect guy to place him in the foil with his feud with Sting. A similarly young up-and-comer that needed someone to do like more exciting state-of-the-art wrestling. Yeah. So this is the complete surprise. This is the Okada that we don't know, but also, most importantly, Tanahashi doesn't know is going to be there. And this is a fascinating example of a match that's in place to help later matches. So when we're talking about passing of the torch stories, like I said, this is probably the best, most complete story. I imagine if Jumbo Saruta hadn't had his health issues, Mm. his series with Masao would have been along these lines really 
where Masawa does get the surprise first victory. Although in that match, it's more of a slight fluke against the run of play. You know, he catches him in a cradle. Whereas this one is a complete destruction of Tanahashi, a systematic takedown. It's not quite Brock Lesnar on John Cena, but it's not a fluky victory insofar as he caught him with a roll-up. This is a definitive, he beats Tanahashi in the middle of the ring. He is the better man in this match. Because Tanahashi underestimated him, but, but also because he clearly had the physical tools with which to defeat Tanahashi. Yeah, the Drumbo and Misawa comparison, obviously there is a slight size difference, whereas with Okada Tanahashi, there, there is a size difference, but Tanahashi makes up for it by being jacked as hell. Well, that is a, an interesting counterpart again with those rivalries, because it is a case that Misawa, to defeat Jumbo, ultimately has to be the cleverer, more complete wrestler, whereas Jumbo just has the physical tools, and so... That helps with the generational conflict with the idea of the older wrestler being physically bigger. So it's kind of like a son trying to fight against his dad sort of dynamic. But in this one, it's the other way around where the next generation of wrestler is like like an upgrade on, on him in the size department. Now, there's never a point where Okada has a physique as good as Tanahashi's, but... It's also just Okada just seems to have clear physical genetic tools that you almost feel like he doesn't even have to spend time in the gym. He just has this innate physical gift of wrestling that he doesn't have to have grand strategies like Tanahashi has. He doesn't have to be as good at dodging attacks as he is hitting attacks. Mm. That he just can blast through Tanahashi with sheer blunt force. And that's really the story of the match, because at the start, it's Tanahashi wearing him down, again like the Nick Bockwinkel-Kurt Hennig opening segment, where he is more technically adept, and he knows how to do a headlock, and he knows how to control Okada with a headlock, and Okada can't get out. And at the start, it's even telling with the entrances. Okada's entrance is like the shortest Okada entrance I think I've ever seen. The entrance ramp is pretty short because it's funny, actually, you'll see the the arenas grow in size and uh, audience numbers as this feud goes on, I suppose. He, like, just has one pose in the corner and his whole entrance is done within less than 30 seconds. Yep. Whereas Tanahashi milks it, plays it up. He really does see this as a bit of a formality like it was with that young lion he'd defeated only less than two years earlier before he went off on his excursion. He eggs the crowd on early doors with chanting as well. Yeah, and he's mirroring that opening match as well. Like you say, playing along with the crowd at the start, controlling Okada with the headlock like he controlled him with the headlock in the first match. But what is the key moment is that when Okada is finally able to hit his dropkick that sends Tanahashi to the outside... And this is the Okada that I always say reminds me so much of Ric Flair, where he takes it to the outside and he's just vicious. And the key, as we were saying with the Okada-Tanahashi first match, was that Okada didn't yet have the strength, nor the know-how, nor the technical ability yet to match Tanahashi. And whilst he doesn't necessarily have the know-how or the technical ability as displayed in that opening passage, what he does have is force behind his blows. And he just basically knocks seven shades of shit out of Tanahashi for long stretches of this match going forward. The section where he goes outside, he, what I've noticed about like these these matches, being the first time I've seen these specific matches, I've seen a lot of Okada matches as part of our five-star project, there's a lot of neck cranks going on. Yes, yeah, well that's the key, that Okada is weakening Tanahashi's neck 
setting him up for his two big moves, which are the Tombstone and the Rainmaker. Yeah. But we don't yet know that those are really his two big moves at this point. But we do see that he's going after Tanahashi's neck with a viciousness. When uh, when Tanahashi targets a limb, it's more out of logic and, you know, knowing that that's the way to go about it. And he'll do it usually in a very technical way. It's drag and screw leg whips, it's submission holds, it's drop kicks, it's precision strikes. Whereas Tanahashi with Okada, it does feel just like blunt force bombs that he's going with. Yeah, like he's like wrench around the barrier. Obviously, because I've only seen, like, sort of smooth, silky Okada. I can't really think of him doing that in, like, other matches I've seen. But it's vicious. It is vicious, like you say. There isn't that assurance with Okada in this match, though. He's he's very much a man with something to prove, not a man who has proven everything. There's no cocky chest pats. There's no... Like you say, the entrance itself is very short, partly due to arena size, partly due to how Okada plays it. It's weird. I'm seeing the man's wearing the clothes, but I'm not really seeing the man that I've come to know. Well, I think that this match is the match where Okada comes to realise that he is that person. Because as it goes on and he continues to control the match for more and more time and Tanahashi's visibly really struggling and is surprised at everything, you see this smile emerging on his face. Mm. And it's like he's almost surprised at himself with how easy he's finding it to dominate Tanahashi in the ring, just by the amount of force that he has behind his blows now. And that that smile just keeps reappearing as the match goes on. And there's never a sense throughout the rest of the match that Tanahashi ever really can reclaim full control. He goes for the knees attack later on in the match, but it's too late in the match for him to have as as much impact as he would have probably wanted. And it's not because that was his strategy going in it was because nothing else is working let's go back to the tried and tested formula of the knee attack and the submission holds yeah i mean he, he does do his dragon screws as you say he does his texas cloverleaf um he also gets one of his teeth knocked out as well yeah that i mean that's such a happy accident obviously not for tanahashi but to simplify the story of Tanahashi's taken a beating. Well, there's no easier symbol of someone having the crap beaten out of them than a tooth flying out. Literally one of his two front teeth as well. Yeah. Sort of like Becky Lynch's blood just before Survivor Series. I mean, that Yes, but that was more to show off Becky Lynch's toughness, whereas this is more to show off Okada's, like, viciousness. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not defiance in the face of blood. It's pain shown off by the fact that he's received blood. It's not blood that Tanahashi's happy to wear as battle scars. No, no, I'm I'm leaning more specifically on the happy accident side of things. Like, both are unintentional things. <laughs> yes, but they tell the story brilliantly. Another fascinating aspect of this match is how many corner men there are for Tanahashi, because at this point it's still this big philosophical battle for the control of New Japan between chaos and as the main heel faction of which Okada's a part of. Ah, so he is a Chaos member at this point. Yeah, as soon as he came back, he was like, for the the press conference after the Wrestle Kingdom event, he comes with Gado as his backup guy. Because as was evident when he did do that challenge to Tanahashi at Wrestle Kingdom, his mic skills aren't there yet. But unlike some promotions, 
New Japan say, okay, there's a weakness there. Well, how do we cover it? By just bringing someone else in. You know, it's the Paul Heyman thing. Hide the negatives. Accentuate the positives. And so with that negative, well, then we just have Gado, the most vocal member of New Japan, and obviously the one that behind the scenes is the guy that's taking this gamble on Okada as well. Mm. Doing it, because he does have every physical tool. He looks great, he's tall, he's got the right sort of body type, and he has his athletic genetics that makes him look good. I mean, you know, when we see him in those, with the blonde hair, and at this point he's actually got the cool sort of purple streaks in it as well, and they've kind of cleaned up. If you've seen, have you, have you ever seen Okada's profile pic for, like, the the match graphic with him and Yoshihashi, he looks so bad. His teeth look wrong, he's dyed his eyebrows, the blonde hair's not right. But just two months later, they've done what they need to, that he looks great already. As you say, he's not yet got the the posture, but the look is down pretty much perfectly, and it only gets better with uh, later uh, accoutrements they add to the Rainmaker concept. He doesn't do the Rainmaker pose, I think. that. Let me just check when he does the pose. Uh, yeah, he does the pose with the entrance, but he doesn't do uh, the the actual Rainmaker pose again until after the match. No, there's no Japanese equivalent of give me that wide shot cameraman in this. No, well, yeah, I mean, that's where it came from, obviously. So it's still not the complete thing there. And like I said, it's weird seeing him do these different moves. Of course, as you say, because his focus of the attack is the neck, we don't... I guess we see, like, there's one submission hold that's almost like a, a lying down version of the money clip. In a way, isn't it? Sort of. I I have it like a crucifix neck crank kind of thing. Yeah, well, there's also one where he's on his back with Tanahashi on top of him and he's wrenching at the neck. He's going for some unconventional submission holes. Like you say, we don't really see from him anymore. And unlike uh, Tanahashi, he hasn't maintained that notion of like always focusing on limbs and body work because the idea with Okada is that he is just the complete wrestler. So, uh strategy and, and trying to outthink his opponents is not really something he has to contend with because he has all the physical gifts needed to beat anyone it seems it, he, he is such a once in a generation talent and we are he's literally fight fighting the guy who's won in a hundred as he says himself not quite go ace yet not quite like he is seen as the default ace. It's like I said, it's so funny that this battle for the ace role that Tanashi ultimately loses. He doesn't even have the ace song yet at yeah. the start of it. But he is, you know, you don't get more of an ace than breaking the record for the most title defenses. That is true. Because I've come into all of these at the tail end in terms of these characters in this rivalry. To me, Tanahashi is just that man who's just like, yeah, he is brilliant. He says he's brilliant. Look at how brilliant he is, kind of thing. And even though the records are there, like you say, and all that stuff, and he's wrestling effectively kind of the same, obviously a little bit more athletic now because there's less wear and tear on his body in these matches than the matches I've seen. It's like he's established. He is a constant, but there's just not this last little 1% or 2% just presenting him as... This ace, this constant, this icon. Is this Okada you're talking about, or Tanahashi? Tanahashi. Okay. It's because you're kind of using now tenses in a way that doesn't quite match yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, I didn't realise Now, that, so as in like, what you're watching now, which what is what I'm was happening in the past. Correct, yes. <laughs> yes. 
So you're saying with 2012, Tanahashi... Well, I guess that part of that needs to come with age and time. Like, he's not yet... You know, he won the IWGP heavyweight title the first time in 2005 or six, I think it was. He's he's still relatively young at this point. He's in his 30s. He's younger here than I think Okada is now, or he's about the same age that Okada is now. Ah. So, you know, with that aura of greatness has to come with time. And Tanahashi himself is only a 13-year veteran at this point. He debuted only. in 99. <laughs> Mind you, it's wrestling. That, that only does mean a lot there for 13 years, doesn't it? Especially in New Japan with what you have to... You know, we've seen those 13 years. And he did sort of take the mantle early on in his run as well compared to as we said what happened with the third generation and how long they had to wait and then when they finally got it they it got snatched away from them almost as quickly so the fourth generation of Tanahashi and Nakamura have had to hold it on for an even longer period than maybe you would have expected from them you know we're, we're going from Nakamura's first title win in 2003 so the fourth generation to a greater or lesser extent has been at the top of New Japan for the past nine years. And of course that is played into at the end of the match as well. When we'll, when we'll get to that. But it's curious as well because it's like Tanahashi's kind of just having to fight on instincts with these things. Because he didn't expect to have to pull out any bag of tricks. He didn't expect to have to have a strategy for Okada. Partly because he doesn't know what Okada has to offer anyway. He only has a four minute match with Yoshihashi. All his dumb stuff in America that you can't imagine Tanahashi was paying much attention to. <laughs> so, he likes Kato, does he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, when he does get back into it, the match, it is through dodging attacks more than anything. And that was one thing I kind of wish we... Because it's... Like, by far, this is the weakest... This is the lowest rated match that they've had outside of the first Young Lions match. Meltzer gave it 4.25 stars. It has an average... Oh, well, then. What's the what's the point? Yeah, well, at that point, 4.25 stars from Meltzer meant a lot more than it does now. <laughs> but it has a, a cage Just to manual. clarify, when you say now, you mean actual now, right? Well, when I say now, I mean now, usually, Simon. <laughs> you know, I'm, cra- I'm crazy like that. It'll never uh, catch on. Yeah. Like, this match on Cage Match gets 8.47. And it's the last Okada-Tanahashi match to have an average rating of under 9 out of 10 on Cage Match until their match in 2019 at the G1 Climax in Texas. And similarly, Meltzer hasn't gone any lower than 4.25 stars since then either. Every match that he's given has been between 4.5 to 5 stars. Uh, me personally, I would probably go with a four-star rating for this match. And I kind of almost wish it was a little bit less spectacular because I do love those matches like Sting versus Big Van Vader at the Great American Bash 92 or the Brock Lesnar-John Cena match at Summer Sam 2014 where you ultimately even sacrifice a little bit of what makes a match as exciting as it can be on the rating scale for sake of the story that you're telling. Or, or another great example of that would be the first John Moxley CM Punk match in AEW on Dynamite that goes for like less than three minutes. Because you're doing it at the expense of the crowd that's there, obviously, so that's a risky take. And so they do have to go into sort of your, you know, the 2012 version of the finishing straight in a New Japan match, which to be fair is not as long-winded, <laughs> as intricate, and as going through the same formula 
as a 2022 version of that does. Four finishes in this match, one of which is blocked. Well, he does the high fly fly to the outside, and that is, again, one of those ones where they're doing the big move to try and shift the momentum because Tanahashi's... It's a move of desperation for Tanahashi in that moment. But Okada does only hit the tombstone once. He um, No, he hits it twice, sorry. He hits it on the outside, and then he hits it in the ring, I think, to set up the Rainmaker. Mm. Well, well I'll got it the other way around. Um, sorry, it hits it in the ring first, and then when okay. they end up outside, that's that's because that's the one where you get the crowd shocked reaction. It's like, oh Christ! <laughs> well, yeah, it's that importance of those things. I remember when um, Okada lost his first G One climax match to Evil. He'd gone on this great run, even though he was clearly walking wounded, and it was that sense of is he just going to go undefeated in the whole run? Because that was how strongly Okada was being presented at that point but then Evil hit him with I think it was a huge powerbomb on a stack of chairs on the out in the crowd ah and I think that's probably a direct reference to this moment and obviously in all those All Japan matches which this again is clearly inspired by new you know by this point New Japan wrestlers aren't afraid to ignore that shoot style king of sports version this is definitely a a it's got a lot more in common with all Japan matches of the 90s than necessarily it does with a lot of the New Japan stuff, especially the Inoki New Japan stuff. Yeah. Back then it was doing moves off of the apron. That was the key big spot in those matches. And as you say, that's the one with this. And that was also the sign of uh, Okada's utter ruthlessness. And also, this is one of the few times I could think of where there's so explicitly like a, a face-heel dynamic in the match as well. Yeah. Like Okada holds on to a, uh, one of those neck cranks when Tanahashi reaches the ropes and he does get booed. He's getting booed when the bell rings because it is at the start. It's like, who's this upstart? <laughs> and then Who it's is th- this bum? <laughs> yeah. And then later on it is, what, this guy's being utterly vicious and he's breaking the rules to try and get to, to hurt our beloved Tanahashi. He's ruined his beautiful face. He's taken a tooth from it. <laughs> Red Shoes as well does not tolerate a hold being held onto. That, he he counts so quick. <laughs> I, I just wish that Okada had been more... Like, towards the end, it's still got to be that it's anyone's game element. It's still played that Okada's, you know, the better man throughout it all. But it's still got to be, like, you know, tough kickouts and Okada does have to look exhausted. I would have rather it be that Okada's pretty much fine and to be fair when he wins the match the first thing he does when he gets to his feet is put his foot on the downed out of it Tanahashi and pose so to say just how complete a victory it's been and how dominant he's been I just wish that had been reflected a bit more in this match I understand where you're coming from I wish Tanahashi hadn't got a single close fall but he does get a few with like a dragon suplex and he does have him down he doesn't get to hit the high fly flow Although uh, he does get the uh, knees up. No, he hits one. Then it's the second yeah, one. Yeah, the outside. I mean the, the in-ring high No, no, he hits the in-ring one. Wait, where does he hit the in- in-ring hit, one? Before he gets the knees up. He hits his. He hits a high flow. Oh, yes, flow. he gets it on his back, sorry. Yes, he yeah. hits it on the back, yes. Well, that's the thing. I would have rather he didn't hit that, I think. It should have been that hmm. sense that Okada never even gave him the chance to do it. That and... Oh, Obviously, the, I know New Japan, it's a bit different, especially in their main events. But you want to kind of protect your finisher a little bit as well. I don't mind that so much if the story of this match is that Tanahashi hasn't got anything that can beat Okada. Because Okada's Rainmaker's protected. 
Tanashi does everything he can to avoid it, avoid it, avoid it, but in the end he gets hit with it. And it's not even like a full-on, like, you know, he's he's been down by a tombstone and he's pulled back up and then hit with it. There's no risk control. No, there's no risk control sequence yet that you have to worry about. But it's in the series of dodges, but then he does hit it. And so it's almost like a flash pin in that sense that he hits him with the surprise finisher. Like, say, the one, two, three kid hitting the moonsault on Razor Ramon. So I guess maybe they feel like, well, there should be at least a little bit of a question to it. Because that's what the rematch is, is going to be. Is Okada a flash in the pan? Is this just a fluke win and then... Is this an aberration? Yeah. yeah. Tanahashi will have as complete a victory over him in the rematch if Okada's still champ by then. Because at the end of the match, after he's won the belt, 23 minutes, 23 seconds, we will not see a match time along those lines for a long time <laughs> after this. <laughs> I do miss these days of New Japan match main events that end in the 20 to 30 minute mark. I would like a lot more of them, please. Yes, but we are where we are with that. <laughs> mm. So this, it plays up to the idea that Tanahashi is the man with skill. And his wrestling instincts are enough that he can still keep up even when he's had the shit beaten out of him. But Okada's just too youthful and vital. You know, he is that young lion at his peak physical strength already. And he doesn't even have to outthink or outfought him. He hurt him more than Okada, than Tanahashi could ever hope to hurt him. And that he has this nasty streak that maybe Gado is uh, responsible for cultivating within him. Yeah, it's weird. Like we are, we are seeing vicious Okada, not assured Okada, as I've mentioned. So, well, like I said, I think he's building assurance because of this match. When this match is over, and even Okada is slightly surprised, he's like, "Oh, I guess I'm the best in the world." Then, <laughs> oh, that'll do. That'll yeah. do. <laughs> and before he can do his speech, out comes uh, the third wheel, the third point of this triangle. I don't know what we're saying. When I watched this, I was kind of like, you know what? If we, it would be such a major project, and we wouldn't do it like one at a time. But I'm almost tempted to try and create a playlist, and maybe once in my life watch it all. Every because Naito comes out, but this is Stardust Genius Naito. This is playing up to the crowd, Naito. Ah. This is high fiving the fans to end the night, Naito. Whilst the triumphant Okada doesn't have to say anything and just walks off. It's Naito trying to be the next Tanahashi Naito. Ah. And, you know, I wish... Because that was the next match. Because in the match before this, again, playing up to the New Beginnings title, uh, Naito had just recorded his biggest ever win, which was a singles win over Shinsuke Nakamura. Oh, I see. So that means that he himself is in line to for an IWGP title match. Right. I assume it's his first one as well, but instead of it being what he would have expected against the man that he's so trying to emulate, Tanahashi, it's the young punk young lion that he beat in that guy's first match as a young lion. Yeah. And he suddenly <laughs> found a slipstream and got ahead of him. But that's okay, he'll beat him in the next match. Narrator voice, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I would love to do like a whole playlist where it's every singles match between Okada, Tanahashi, Naito... And whoever at the time is the leader of the Bullet Club. I think that would be a fascinating playlist to watch. That's a hefty, hefty ask you'll make. Like putting well, there. yeah, but New Japan are... This is 15 matches we're covering. And obviously that's going to be a lot for this. But it's 15 matches over a 12-year period. So they know how to 
make it work. I'm not saying I'm doing it. I'm just saying, it, you know, if I was to say to someone, you know, how why is New Japan the best storytelling and the be- arguably is New Japan in 20, the 2010s the best wrestling promotion ever? Well, those matches would probably be enough that you need to see to know that. Okay, that's true. It'd be a very strong uh, case to put forward. But that's not the case we're putting about here. But yeah, as I said, I would give this match four stars, I think I would actually. I wouldn't go for the four and a quarter. I'd rate it a bit below that. How about you, Simon? Yeah, I'd go around the four mark, I'd say. It tells a good story, but there's just little bits. Yeah, I admired the story that they dared to tell that no one expected. I just wish they'd gone even further with how they told it. It's like been even more... Shocking. Yeah, more confounding of expectations. Yeah. Because there's already a formula to New Japan matches that you see there, and they do slide into it in that finishing stretch, but, you know... I mean, every promotion's entitled to their style. Everyone's got tropes. Everyone has tropes. Hopefully what this series of matches will show is how they tell a story within those tropes and how they change things up from match to match, because tomorrow we'll be talking about the rematch with Tanahashi coming back to challenge... Okada in June, so it's four months later, it's 16th of June, it's Dominion. So technically, wow, so four months and four days later. Yeah, and it's Okada's third defense of his one IWGP Heavyweight Championship. So you'll have that to listen to tomorrow. But until then, so many people want to get in touch with you, how can they do so? Uh, They can get in touch with me on Twitter, so known as Simon Cross Free there. The reason I'm known for that is because there were three high-fly-flow attempts in this match. My name's Lorcan Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A-N, as in a need for a dentist. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox, putting at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also a Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. I'll hope you'll stay with us as we continue to... Rerun the ride.